Women's Fight Back, 8th of March 2019, a socialist feminist publication produced by Workers' Liberty. Women Fighting Stalinism by Jill Mountford. How does a woman who adamantly refused to call herself a feminist and was vehemently anti-communist, who was a passionate Roman Catholic and held Pope John Paul II as one of her heroes and later friend, herself become an inspirational hero for socialist feminists? For starters, she does so by being astonishingly courageous, by challenging the crushing Stalinist anti-working class bureaucracy in her workplace for over two decades, by organising an underground workers group, and in doing so, becoming the subject of constant harassment and risking imprisonment. Anna Valentinovich was a crane operator in the Lenin shipyard in Gdansk, whose sacking on August the 7th 1980, famously sparked a strike for her reinstatement one week later on August the 14th. By August the 16th, management had caved into the workers' demands and Lech Walesa and other men on the strike committee declared a return to work. And according to most eyewitness accounts, it was Anna Valentinovich, along with Alina Pinkowska, a 30-year-old nurse and trade unionist at the shipyard, and Henrika Krivenos, a transport worker shop steward, who famously used the tram to bring the city to a total standstill, who argued with Valesa to keep the strike going. It was Henrika who shouted from the floor of the mass meeting, If you abandon us, we'll be lost. Bosses can't face tanks. The strike continued and spread, and took on the demands of other strikes on the Baltic coast. By 21st of August, Valentinovich and Valesa were co-leading the new Solidarność movement that within weeks was a movement with a million members and by their first anniversary, August 1981, had 10 million workers in its ranks. In just over three weeks of the strike starting, the newly formed Solidarność forced the Stalinist authorities to sign an agreement, a 21-point workers' charter that included the following demands. Free and independent trade unions, the right to strike, the freeing of political prisoners, and for free, uncensored media. Solidarność was one of the first free trade unions in the Eastern Bloc, and was the beginning of the end for the Stalinist regimes of Eastern Europe. Anna Valentinovich was just five months off retirement in August 1980, having worked in the Lenin shipyard for 30 years. Once recognised as a hero of socialist labour, or a Stakhanovite, for her hard work and productivity, she increasingly became disillusioned with so-called communist rule in Poland and was a vocal champion for justice for workers in the shipyard. And so, instead of retiring at the end of 1980, she became a central figure in one of the most significant working-class events of the 20th century. Anna Valentinovich's work as a trade unionist deserves consideration. A leading woman with two decades of experience, she was part of a movement that within the first few weeks of its existence had a membership that was more or less 50-50 women and men, while women made up 30% of the manual workers in the Lenin shipyard. And though massively underrepresented in the leadership of Solodarnosh, these women played a vital role in building this movement. And they did so despite carrying the double burden of hard wage slavery for very poor pay and conditions while being valorised as mothers and homemakers. When women were not working, they were queuing, in long, long queues for basic food items, often at highly inflated prices. Indeed, these highly inflated prices were the catalysts to a wave of strikes and oppressive reaction in Woods in 1971. 
These class battles galvanised many workers, including Anna Valentinovich, and she and others worked in underground workers' groups until the founding of Solidarność in August 1980. Gender inequality in Poland was and is influenced and bolstered by the Catholic Church, by traditional nationalist values about women, motherhood and makapolka, and by Stalinism and the glorification of the family and a mother's role within it. Despite the role played by women such as Anna, Alina and Henrika, and despite the solid support and involvement of millions of women in Solidarność, there was much sexism within the movement. The top leadership of Solidarność included a president, two deputies, a presidium of ten and a council of one hundred, and there was not one woman to be seen. Yet Polish women were among the first to get the vote in 1918. They had restricted legal abortions rights from 1932 and full abortion rights from 1956. Indeed, women from Sweden and Germany travelled to Poland to make use of this opportunity. And Poland is the only post-Stalinist country that has developed anything like a women's movement. But this movement developed as a direct response to anti-women policies around abortion in 1990, when the post-Stalinist government attacked abortion rights, and now Poland has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe. That same year, Solidarność established a women's section, in less than a year it was closed. As the complexion of Solidarność changed over that decade, a new kind of feminism developed. As Nancy Fraser points out, it was during this period Poland saw a wave of feminism that not only failed to criticise neoliberal capitalism, but moved from a feminism based on more egalitarian ideas to more individualistic, meritocratic and entrepreneurial feminism, encouraging women to lean in. Just two days after martial law was declared, after the tanks had rolled onto the streets and class fighters were shot or arrested, Helena Vachvo, a journalist in the Solidarność movement, cautiously but courageously left her apartment in search of others to set up a much-needed free and independent underground press. What she and others did over the next nine years was in many ways astonishingly impressive, but today Helena is one of Poland's wealthiest and most powerful people. Over that decade, the politics of the Lenin shipyard lost out to a much more bourgeois liberation movement against decades of Stalinist oppression. As we said at the time, Stalinism was never socialism, but the revolt against it is socialism in the embryo. And having the freedom to organise, to think freely and independently, to make and fight for our independent class interests is the beginning of human emancipation. Edith Lanchester and Free Love by Michael McCoyan. Edith Lanchester, 1871-1966, was a British socialist and feminist who came to prominence in the late 19th century for making a challenge to the institution of marriage. Lanchester came from a prosperous family in Battersea, in South London, but com committed herself to the socialist movement. She joined the SDF in 1892, rising to a position on its executive in 1895. Her socialist feminist convictions had led Lanchester to conclude that the wife's vow to obey her husband was oppressive and that she was politically opposed to the institution of marriage. Acting on her convictions, Lanchester caused a storm when she announced that, in protest against Britain's patriarchal marriage laws, she was going to cohabit in a free union with her lover, an Irish factory worker and fellow socialist, James Sullivan. The union was to begin on the 26th of October 1895. Incensed, Lanchester's family and brothers barged into her house the night before and forcibly subjected their daughter to an examination by Dr George Fielding Blanford, a leading psychiatrist and author of Insanity and Its Treatment. After signing emergency commitment papers under the 1890 Lunacy Act, 
Fielding Blanford had Lanchester imprisoned. Her own father and brothers bound her wrists and dragged her to a carriage destined for the Priory Hospital in Roehampton. The psychiatrist explained his reasoning in a contemporary news report. Lanchester had always been eccentric and had lately taken up with socialists of the most advanced order. She seemed quite unable to see that the step she was about to take meant utter ruin. Was in his opinion a monomaniac on the subject of marriage and the psychiatrist believed that her brain had been turned by socialist meetings and writings and that she was quite unfit to take care of herself. This incident caused a national scandal and attracted much interest, with the New York Times reporting that no penny paper had printed less than 10 columns on this engrossing subject during the week. Almost immediately, a meeting was called by Lanchester's comrades under the auspices of the Legitimation League, a body set up to campaign to secure equal rights for children born outside of marriage. At the meeting, a resolution was passed against Fielding Blanford and Lanchester's landlady, the SDF activist Mary Gray, was urged to take legal action against the tenant's brother for assaulting her during the raid on her home. STF members also sang the red flag outside Lanchester's window at the asylum to keep up her morale. After four days of lobbying by the SDF, with the help of Lanchester's local MP, the former SDF member, John Burns, the commissioners of lunacy proclaimed her sane, though foolish, and released her. Contemporary socialists were often squeamish about defending Lanchester, with independent Labour Party leader Keir Hardy accusing her of discrediting socialism by associating it with free love. When Lanchester spoke at a meeting in the Opretta House in Edinburgh in February 1896, a young James Connolly from the chair assured the audience of the Pactrum that socialism had no connection with speculations on family life and was nowise responsible for the opinions of individual socialists on that subject. Eleanor Marx, angry at some socialist failure to support Lanchester, took her on as a secretary in 1897 and the two became friends. Lanchester's stand was a brave and radical challenge by committed socialist feminists to the institution of marriage and to late Victorian society's highly constrained and patriarchal conception of femininity. Introducing Social Reproduction Theory by Kira Miles One of the key texts of early social reproduction theory was Liza Vogel's Marxism and the Oppression of Women, published in 1983. Vogel's aim in the book was to criticise the dual systems theory that emerged from the 1970s, which saw a. Marxism as an explanation for class exploitation and b. patriarchy as an explanation for women's oppression, two linked but fundamentally separate systems. Some, like Hartman, explicitly stated that Marxism was sex-blind, which necessitated a specifically feminist analysis of patriarchy. Some socialist feminists went further, and suggested how the two systems might be more than linked, but symbiotically related. But Vogel sought to overcome that dual systems theory entirely, and explain how class exploitation and women's oppression are in fact component parts of the same system. See Capitalism and Women's Oppression by Rachel Clark. As Susan Ferguson and David McNally note in their introduction to Vogel's book, the subtitle is Towards a Unitary Theory, and that subtitle links Vogel's project to the socialist feminist search for a single, integrated, theoretical account of both women's oppression and the capitalist mode of production. Page 23. Women's oppression under capitalism 
is rooted in women's overwhelming responsibility within the family unit for a domestic labour necessary for the functioning of capitalism on the day-to-day level by ensuring the workforce is capable of showing up the next day fit for work and b child rearing necessary for capitalism's generational continuation via reproduction of the future workforce. Bhattacharya states in social reproduction theory remapping class recentering oppression that both those functions are disproportionately borne by women under capitalism and are the sources of women's oppression under that system. Page 73. Labour is the critical element in the creation of surplus value, production. So we must also analyse how that labour is made ready for the next working day, year or decade, reproduction. Every social process of production is at the same time a process of reproduction. Marx, Capital Volume 1, page 711. Put simply, if capitalism continues because we need to work in order to live, what are the conditions that enable us to work? This is the starting point of social reproduction theory. Marx noted the unique quality of labour power. It is the only commodity that, upon use, creates more value than it originally possessed. A human, or more specifically human labour power, is capable of turning pieces of leather into a shoe. No other commodity can perform this feat. Put a tomato or a pen in front of pieces of leather and see what happens. Of course, the need for human labour is not unique to capitalism. Marx stated, Labour, then, as the creator of use values as useful labour, is a condition of human existence, which is independent of all forms of society. It is an eternal natural necessity which mediates the metabolism between man and nature, and therefore human life itself. Page 133. Labour is transhistoric. Any form of human society requires labour to sustain itself. Even the Andafors had to expend labour in carving spears for hunting, in gathering berries and roots, in creating shelter, etc. Marx was not the creator of the labour theory of value. Other economists before him, such as Ricardo, had noted the importance of labour in the creation of value. But Marx's critical insight in Volume 1 of Capital was in distinguishing labour from labour power. Under capitalism, our ability to work is commodified, and the most dominant or generalised form of exploitation becomes our need to sell our ability to work, our labour power. While there has always been human labour in society, it is only under capitalism that workers turn their labour into the commodity of labour power. Labour is the act of conscious human activity. Labour power is what workers sell, their ability to work, as a commodity, to a boss, in exchange for a wage, in order to buy other commodities. All the necessary things we need to live, like clothes and food. Marx then distinguished between how our time is spent on the production of commodities. The time spent on producing commodities in exchange for a wage that is used to sustain us, he calls socially necessary labour time. The value of labour power is the value of the means of subsistence necessary for the maintenance of its owner. Page 274. The other time spent on producing commodities which are taken by the capitalist as surplus value, he calls surplus labour time. Wherever a part of society possesses the monopoly of the means of production, the worker must add to the labour time necessary for his own maintenance an extra quantity of labour time in order to produce the means of subsistence for the owner of the means of production. Page 344. 
The distinction is not only important in explaining the origin of surplus value, but in drawing our attention to our need to reproduce our daily lives. If the owner of labour power works today, tomorrow he must again be able to repeat the same process, in the same conditions as regards health and strength. His means of subsistence must therefore be sufficient to maintain him in his normal state as a labouring individual. His natural wants, such as food, clothing, fuel and housing, vary according to the climactic and other physical conditions of his country. On the other hand, the number and extent of his so-called necessary wants, as also the modes of satisfying them, are themselves a product of historical development, and depend therefore to a great extent on the degree of civilization of a country, more particularly on the conditions under which, and consequently on the habits and degree of comfort in which, the class of free labourers has been formed. Marx, page 275. This tells us two things. Firstly, the importance of class struggle in determining the value of labour power and the kinds of needs, wants and desires that we have. Secondly, that labour power is expended through the production of commodities. After a hard day's work, you need a cup of tea and a hot meal. A definite quantity of human muscle, nerve, brain is expended and these things have to be replaced. Marks, pages 274-5. The question is how are they replaced? The most common site for the replenishment of labour power is the kin-based family unit. Despite the mass entry of women into the workforce over the last century, women are expected to take on the majority or even the sole responsibility for domestic labour outside of work hours too, what feminists have termed the double burden. Women who work care for older family members and child-rearing in the home. These tasks are of course unpaid. And so the structure of the nuclear family, with women dependent on a partner's wage, continues for millions of people even today. The think tank Catalyst stated that in 2018, women's participation in work globally was 48.5% compared to 75% of men. The gap between the two is largely explained by the expectation that women will participate in domestic labour in place of paid employment. Of course, women who work are usually expected to continue domestic labour outside of work hours too. Women who work are additionally more likely to be in part-time employment. A 2013 report by the Office for National Statistics found that women in work globally, 42% are in part-time employment. This can be explained by the responsibilities of domestic labour and the shortage of free childcare. On top of this, women can be expected to be paid less than men for like-for-like -like work. Catalyst found in 2018 the average gender pay gap in the UK is 18.4%. So women earn about 80% of men's wages for identical work. The gap is much wider in other countries. Marx was careful to note that even in developed countries where industrialised capitalism had become the dominant mode of production, there are often still remnants of earlier stages of capitalism, e.g. handicrafts, or even other forms of production. Similarly, it is important to note that whilst the family household is the dominant site of social reproduction, there are several alternative sites as well. Within the national framework, a source of generational replenishment of the workforce can come through immigration. Governments with ageing populations often seek young migrant workers to take on social care and health work, or other forms of work more generally. Earlier in capitalism's history, slavery provided an expanded workforce in the cotton and tobacco plantations in the USA and the sugar and coffee plantations in the Caribbean. 
Some reproduction can also take place outside the house, for example in the dormitory labour system for temporary migrants and contract labourers, overwhelmingly women, bound by the hukou system in the special economic zones in southern China. See Pundangai 2009 in which the state builds dormitories next to factory compounds and rents them out for use to the factory owners. Shortening the spatial distance between the workplace and the site of reproduction has clear benefits for the bosses. It is easy to hold down wages and lengthen the working day. 20th century fascism and Stalinism point to yet another system, the inhumane history of forced labour camps. There are many other additional non-family-based forms of living today, Flat shares, housing cooperatives, care homes, single parent households and so on. However, with all these specificities having been accounted for, the household of the nuclear family remains the dominant form in which social reproduction takes place. Bhattacharya stresses that successful battles by the working class for healthcare provision, pensions, public facilities like children's centres has led to some aspects of social reproduction moving directly into the sphere of paid employment. Instead of caring for an elderly relative, we pay a care home. Instead of cooking, we get a takeaway. Instead of caring for children around the clock, we make use of children's centres. The level of class struggle and the degree of ruling class self-interest has often determined whether these things are paid for by individuals and families or funded out of taxation by the state. Cultural expectations, that many of the tasks formerly done by women in the household remain women's work, even when turned into paid employment, often means that these jobs are in the majority held by women and are often the lowest paid industries too. Many of these sites blur the lines between the private and public spheres. A school is a site of reproduction, the education of children, and production, teachers working for a wage. We can also make distinctions between whether these sites are run for profit or not, and therefore whether the work is productive or non-productive, in the sense of the terms as used in Marxist economics. But the outcome is the same. Bhattacharya notes that it is important in this regard to clarify that what we designated above as two separate spaces, a. spaces of productions of value, points of production, and b. spaces for reproduction of labour power, may be separate in the strictly spatial sense, but they are actually united in the theoretical and operational senses, and sometimes the two processes may be ongoing within the same space. Page 75. Having outlined the main contours of social reproduction theory, there are three current areas of debate among its proponents that I would like to draw attention to, none of which I have drawn a definitive answer to and all of which I have sketched simplified outlines of below. The first is the question of the classification of social reproduction, specifically as to whether it is value producing or not. The second is to how to overcome the problems of social reproduction, focused on campaigns like wages for housework. The third is the emotional aspect to these questions. The first question can be posed thus. Is the reproductive sphere, all of the cooking, cleaning and other housework, and even the emotional support of a relationship, the schools that taught us, the hospitals that treat us, and the libraries and parks and culture that nourish our intellectual faculties, necessary for the continuation of capitalism, but one which falls outside of the sphere of production, or is it a form of production itself? Is social reproduction, as the creator of the commodity of labour power, also a form of productive labour? Autonomous Marxists who answer positively to this question have developed a theory of the social factory. 
If labour power is a commodity, but produced outside of the workplace, and the extension of capitalist social relations reaches far beyond the factory gates, then the whole of society lives as a function of the factory, and the factory extends its exclusive domination to the whole of society. Tronti. This, however, poses immediate problems for socialist strategy. If the workplace is no longer a specific spatial site, but the whole of society, how do struggles over wages and working conditions materialise? Additionally, Marx wrote about how capitalist social relations expand beyond the workplace and necessarily imply, for example, the existence of the state and a legal juridical framework. See Chapter 2 of Capital Volume 1. This does not, however, overcome the necessity of wage labour in the workplace for the functioning of capitalism and blurs the crucial distinctions made by social reproduction theorists between wage and unwaged labour, private and public spheres, production and reproduction. The second question relates to attempts to overcome the oppression of domestic labour. The Wages for Housework campaign in the 1970s sought to draw attention to the existence of gendered domestic labour and to demand wages for that domestic work necessary for capitalism that went unpaid. However, the logic of the demand remained in some ways individualistic, centred around that work remaining within the household. Federici stated that the demand for wages for housework was not really made with the expectation of winning the demand. In fact, to demand wages for housework does not mean to say that if we are paid, we will continue to do it. It was rather a way of drawing attention to the nature of housework, its gender dimensions, and the idea that it is a natural or innate part of womanhood, and a way of struggling against it. I would question that if women were to be paid for housework, would that really undermine the idea of women's work, or in fact reinforce it? If the demand is made not to be actually won, but as a tool in consciousness raising, should we pose slogans that we don't actually want to win? Other demands in the history of the socialist movement have instead been about socialisation of the domestic sphere, communal laundries, kitchens, childcare facilities, and so on. These demands draw the work out of individual households and into the community. These were indeed the aspirations of socialist feminists like Alexandra Kollontai during the early days of the Russian Revolution. The third problem relates to the difficulty in theorising our emotional relationship to social reproduction, particularly in relation to child-rearing and emotional labour. Despite the many obstacles outlined above, raising children is for many people of all genders a rewarding and fulfilling endeavour. Yes, raising children is a form of work, insofar as nearly everything we do that is necessary for the functioning of capitalism is a form of work. But it is also a labour of love, and something many derive immense personal fulfilment from. Is there a danger that a neoliberal logic of every single thing having a price or a value or an exchangeability can ignore this, if not essential, then commonplace part of our humanity? Some variants of anti-work politics can go from fair criticism of the current makeup of our working lives and the existence of bullshit jobs, but then shade into outright hostility to work itself, denying that labour, i.e. using our mental and physical and creative capacities to change the world around us, can be an enjoyable part of our humanity. In a similar fashion, some criticisms of domestic labour can shade into a hostility to all forms of social reproduction. What if we enjoy cooking for our housemates, or like helping our kids with homework? We are social animals who enjoy human interaction in its many forms, friendships, families, sexual and romantic relationships, having colleagues, being on a sports team, being part of a community or subculture. 
when we listen to our friends, offer them emotional support, remember a birthday, isn't that part of the normal and immeasurable parameters of friendship rather than a form of unpaid labour? Vogel summarises the questions posed thus. The domestic labour literature identified family households as sites of production. Reconceptualised as, dom- as domestic labour, housework and childcare could then be analysed as labour processes. From this beginning came a series of questions. If domestic labour is a labour process, then what is its product? People? Commodities? Labour power? Does the product have value? If so, how is that value determined? How and by what or whom is the product consumed? What are the circumstances, conditions and constraints of domestic labour? What is domestic labour's relationship to the reproduction of labour power? To overall social reproduction? To capitalist accumulation? Could a mode of reproduction of people be posited, comparable to, but separate from, the mode of production? My answers to these questions explain the origins of women's oppression. Page 184. These are questions that the movement is still theorising. Like the search for a grand unified theory of physics, the attempts to be specific about the extant forms of production and reproduction as part of a unified materialist understanding of society continue to be detailed and analysed. Social reproduction theory aids us, as Bhattacharya says, in providing an explanation of capitalism in its messy, sensuous, gendered race totality, centred around human life and the class struggle. Capitalism's unruly component, living human beings capable of following orders as well as of flouting them. Page 70. Transphobia and Materialism by Natalia Cassidy. This article was written in the hope of generating some discussions around this topic. The author would strongly encourage response pieces, whether in agreement or disagreement. Discussion around trans rights, particularly in the last few years, has largely fallen into two strands, the liberal identitarian view and the essentialist determinist view held by some of those who call themselves radical feminists. I hope to offer an alternative view, grounded in materialism, situating transphobia within gendered oppression and broader queer oppressions. The material basis of gendered oppression is, in brief, the gendered division of labour. This has its historical basis in biological sex differences and women's ability to birth children, though it is not bound solely to this. Women cannot individually escape gender depression if for whatever reason they are not able to have children. This condition led to women primarily performing reproductive labour. In pre-capitalist society, the family had greater independence in economic terms. Much economic activity, particularly agrarian production, was organised on small family holdings. As capitalism developed, the family moved from being a relatively independent unit to an economically dependent, as wage labourers, but internally interdependent unit. This exacerbated and formalised the gendered divide between productive and reproductive labour. It is at this point historically, John D'Amelio asserts, homosexuality came into being. An assertion for what it's worth, I don't think he literally believed, Baravis for its analytical and political value. D'Amelio argues that because of this move away from the family unit, from independent units to interdependent units, several things occurred. Due to the increased, limited individual economic freedom that capitalism introduced, people were able to effectively live outside of any family unit. It was no longer an economic necessity to do so. 
Therefore, gays and lesbians, though mostly gay men, given the dominance of men in the wage labour force, were able to live their lives fully expressing their homosexuality where before they were unable to. As capitalism developed, it showed an increased tendency away from the central economic role of the family. Women were entering the workplace in increasing numbers. The working day was becoming shorter and improvements in technology meant there was less need for a dedicated class devoted solely to reproductive labour in the same way as before. As the central economic role of family life waned, the social aspect was emphasised. Family was seen as central to personal fulfilment, happiness and social stability. So we see, as the forces of capitalist development weakened, the bonds of the family unit, the blame was placed on homosexuals as a convenient scapegoat for perceived fraying of social fabric to do with the deprioritization of family life. Recent history, I think, has supported D'Amelio's analysis. The habilitation of homosexuality in most advanced capitalist economies has been largely dominated by liberal assertions that gays and lesbians are just as able to participate in family life and the institution of marriage as anyone else. I think the analysis of grounding transphobia in materialism lies parallel to the argument made by D'Amelio. As capitalism is developing, the ruling class is less and less interested in maintaining rigid gender divides as it did in the past. It is in the interest of capital that women's surplus labour be appropriated in line with men's, and that they have cause to consume the output of production as men do. So, as such rigid ties to maintaining strictly enforced gender roles wanes due to the requirements of capital shifting, trans people act as a convenient scapegoat for those who see this freeing up of gendered expression as an affront to the health of our social fabric. Source, John D'Amelio, 1983, Capitalism and Gay Identity, in Powers of Desire, The Politics of Sexuality. Become Not Women by Janine Booth In 1848, in response to the 300-strong Convention for Women's Rights in Seneca Falls, USA, and its Declaration of Sentiments, a Philadelphia newspaper urged the city's ladies not to join the new movement and become women, but to stay as wives, bells, virgins, and mothers. Here's Janine Booth's poetic response. We strongly urge our female readers, in wimples, bonnets, veils and mufflers, your made as bearers, growers, feeders, not drivers, tellers, surgeons, discoverers. Girls stay at home and sow your days, no trade nor college as your brothers. Serve at dawn, keep pure and raise, wives, bells, virgins and mothers. Philly wants its fillies chained, for breeding mares not running wild. So sire will and entertain, and keep thee chaste, then raise the child. Stir the cook pot, wash and pray, if he dies your living's covered. Turn not into women, stay, our wives, bells, virgins and mothers. Convert ye not from these to women, with views, demands, loud voices, rights. We fear the cold of home fires dimming, sign not this sentiment to fight. Become not women, darling things, keep private hells that surge and smother, with bands and rings and apron strings, for wives, bells, virgins and mothers. Convention means our fine traditions, not halls of speeches, fancy schemes, of harridans who rouse sedition for rights and other silly dreams. No spinsters, harpies, whores agenda, a man's firm hand must grip the rudder. Be passive, pretty, untarnished, tender, be wives, bells, virgins and mothers.
Women and the Alt-Right by Kathy Nugent The image, and to a large extent the reality, of US alt-right and far-right activist groups is that they are overwhelmingly populated by men. Indeed, these groups draw on certain themes associated with toxic masculinity. For, ex- for example, extremely conservative views on gender and gender-defined social roles. The anti-feminist men's right movement has been a gateway movement for the alt-right. It may come as a surprise that, according to the 2016 American National Election Survey, ANES, men are not any more likely to have those core social feelings that underlie the current US far-right than women. In other words, there is a disparity between the rights-based mixed gender and its activism, male-dominated. Moreover, when you look at the biographies of women who are prominent on the far right, they do not embody a stereotype of women who stay at home to breed babies. Recognising the fact of women's involvement on the far right is not to claim a feminist success story. Rather, it is to point to a serious danger. If the far right does begin to reflect its gender-diverse base, it will grow more rapidly. The feminist left, feminist women in particular, should not view the far right as an immutably male-centred phenomena. George Hawley from the Institute of Family Studies analysed the 2016 American National Election Study, which asked respondents for their views on three statements associated with white identity politics, on white identity, the importance of white solidarity, and white victimisation. Hawley looks at the results for non-Hispanic white people. Just under 6% strongly identified with all three white identity statements. The disaggregated statistics show some unsurprising demographic correlations. For example, white identities were slightly stronger among people who had less education. 7% of people with no college degree, as opposed to 3% with a college degree, strongly identified with all three white identity statements. One strong correlation was quite interesting. 10% of divorced people had a strong white identity. Of the results which were more surprising, such as no great difference in views between religious and non-religious people, there was also no great difference between men, 5.24%, and women, 5.99%. At some level, far-right groups and self-proclaimed leaders need to recognise women, although that recognition can be, and has to be, very warped. Take the far-right group Proud Boys. Founded by ex-Vice Media boss Gavin McInnes, Proud Boys is closely associated with anti-feminism. It is known for starting fights at political rallies, and of course, is open only to people born with a penis. Yet they felt the need to set up an auxiliary group, Proud Girls, or Proud Boys Girls. Note the possessive syntax, which points to an abusive culture which some women get involved in. In July last year, a Portland police officer, Erin Wiley, was sacked after a photo of her dressed in a Proud Girls t-shirt appeared in a local newspaper. Later it was revealed that the photo was sent to the press by her abusive ex-boyfriend. Wiley claimed that she thought that Proud Boys was just a pro-Trump drinking club. Wiley was not reinstated, a fact which her ex-boyfriend celebrated online. Nonetheless, the story helped to get Proud Boys officially designated an extremist organisation by the FBI. The careers of three prominent far-right women, Faith Goldie, Lauren Southern and Lana Lochteff, show up a number of contradictions. Both Faith Goldie and Lauren Southern are Canadians, who are reporters for Canada's conservative Sun News network. Both ended up a YouTube-based Rebel Media. Rebel Media is a counter-jihadist outfit. 
Goldie claims that she only became active on the far right in the run-up to the August 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, when she discovered the intellectual rigour of the far right. They introduced her to the idea of the white genocide, the idea that white people are being replaced in their own land, which helped her make sense of her own hitherto nebulous observations, blah blah. Whether this self-serving racist nonsense was too much, even for rebel media, we don't know. They sacked her. Lauren Southern, also Canadian, but unlike the highly certificated Goldie, is a college dropout. She started out in the ultra-conservative Canadian Libertarian Party, and is now, like a lot of far-right personalities, a YouTube star, and goes on speaking tours. Yet, paradoxically, Phil's obliged to say such things as, women are not psychologically developed to hold leadership positions. Her most recent hate targets have been transgender people, and activism, saving migrants from drowning in the Mediterranean, and of course, Islam. Her book is entitled Barbarians, How Baby Boomers, Immigrants and Islam Screwed My Generation. Lana Lochtef got her start in her husband's media company Red Ice, which specialised in conspiracy theories and later anti-Semitism. Lochtef seems a bit cannier than, than other women right activists. She's made it her business to try to recruit women to the movement because they are an important base. As she told one rally, it was women who got Trump elected, and I guess to be really edgy, it was women who got Hitler elected. Edgy, certainly, if not accurate on that point about Hitler. It's certainly not new or news that women have participated in far-right movements, and often in the past recruiting children to the cause. Blow's movements tended to be bigger and more embedded in social institutions, e.g. the Nazi party or the Ku Klux Klan. What is new and significant here is the like-men roles these women play, globetrotting, public speaking and writing political pop boilers. At the moment, these women have to walk a line between demonstrating some power and articulating the inferiority of women. We can't wait around for these far-right activists to show us their next moves. We have to articulate a socialist feminism that ideologically confronts the hate messages of the far-right aims to unite genders and turn social alienation into a class-based fight. The Socialist Roots of International Women's Day This is an abridged version of an article by Janine Booth, first published in 2007. By the beginning of the 20th century, the relatively young capitalist system had thrown millions of women in industrially developing countries into factories, domestic service and other work. Many occupations were gender segregated and women's work, such as textiles, was often in the most appalling sweatshops, with low pay, terrible safety standards and long hours. But at least workers were together, rather than isolated in the home, so they were able to fight back. Women workers, both unionised and not, organised industrial disputes to win better conditions. Although women had become part of public life as workers, they were still excluded from public life as citizens. They did not have the vote. Women's suffrage movements grew across Britain, Europe, America and elsewhere. It was from the storm of protest and action that International Women's Day was born. 1907 on March the 8th, women demonstrated in New York, demanding votes for women and an end to child labour and sweatshops. It was the 50th anniversary of a major protest by women garment workers against poor working conditions and low wages, also in New York City. 1908. On the same day, a year later, 15,000 women marched through New York, demanding shorter hours, better pay, union rights and the vote, packing out Rutgers Square and Manhattan's Lower East Side. 
Most were garment workers, sick of the conditions in the needle trade factories described as the vilest and foulest industrial sores of New York. The employers made the women pay for their needles, thread and even chairs. 1909 Women shirtwaist makers staged a 13-week strike in 1909, known as the Rising of the 20,000. Their fight won better conditions and gave confidence to American workers for several generations to come. As strike leader Clara Lemnick said, they used to say you couldn't even organise women. They wouldn't come to union meetings. They were temporary workers. Well, we showed them. The Socialist Party of America declared 28th of February 1909 the first National Women's Day, NWD. And socialist women held marches and meetings across the country to demand political rights for working women. 2,000 people attended a Women's Day rally in Manhattan. 1910. Clara Zetkin proposed to the International Congress of Socialist Women that women the world over set aside a particular day each year to remember women and their struggles. In agreement with the class-conscious political and trade union organisations of the proletariat of their respective countries, the socialist women of all countries will hold each year a Women's Day, whose foremost purpose it must be to aid the attainment of women's suffrage. Over 100 women from 17 countries unanimously agreed, deciding that on this day, socialists in all countries should hold big events involving men and women and demanding improvements for working women. 1911. International Women's Day, IWD, was held on 19th of March, with more than 1 million women and men attending IWD rallies in Austria, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland, demanding women's rights to work, vote, be trained, to hold public office, and end discrimination. A million leaflets calling for action on the right to vote were distributed throughout Germany in the run-up to the day. Russian revolutionary and feminist Alexandra Kollontai was in Germany at the time and helped to organise the day. She wrote that it exceeded all expectations. Germany and Austria was one seething, trembling sea of women. Meetings were organised everywhere. In the small towns and even in the villages, halls were packed so full that they had to ask male workers to give up their places for the women. Men stayed at home with their children for a change, and their wives, the captive housewives, went to meetings. During the largest street demonstrations in which 30,000 were taking part, the police decided to remove the demonstrators' banners. The women workers made a stand. In the scuffle that followed, bloodshed was averted only with the help of the socialist deputies in Parliament. 25th of March 1911, the Triangle Fire. Less than a week after that first International Women's Day, over 140 workers died in the Triangle Fire in New York. Mostly young Jewish and Italian immigrant women, they burned to death when the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory where they worked caught fire. They died because working conditions were terrible and safety measures lacking, because capitalists pocket the profit they make from women's labour rather than spending it on civilised working conditions. Subsequent IWDs demanded workers' legal rights and improved safety standards to avert further disasters like this one. Women's Suffrage Organised by socialists, International Women's Day was celebrated on March the 8th from 1913 to 1915 with women's parades and demonstrations in many European cities. Alexandra Kollontai explained why the early International Women's Days focused on winning the vote for women. In the last years before the war, 
the rise in prices forced even the most peaceful housewife to take an interest in questions of politics and to protest loudly against the bourgeoisie's economy of plunder. Housewives' uprisings became increasingly frequent, flowing up at different times in Austria, England, France and Germany. The working women understood that it wasn't enough to break up the stalls at the market or threaten the old merchant. They understood that such action doesn't bring down the cost of living. You have to change the politics of the government. And to achieve this, the working class has to see that the franchise is widened. 1913-1914 As the First World War loomed, Russian women observed their first International Women's Day on the last Sunday of February 1913. Women across Europe held peace rallies on the 8th of March 1913 and again in 1914. 1917 On the last Sunday of February the 23rd, Russian women began a strike for bread and peace. Until four days later, the Tsar was forced to abdicate. The provisional government granted votes to women. 23rd of February on the Julian calendar, Lenin use in Russia, is the 8th of March under Gregorian calendar used elsewhere. The Bolshevik leaders had apparently asked the women workers not to strike, but when workers were locked out of the Putilov armaments plant on March the 7th, the women of Petrograd began to storm the streets. The wives, daughters and mothers of soldiers, previously as downtrodden and depressed as prostitutes, demanded an end to their humiliation and angrily denounced all the hungry suffering of the past three years. Gathering strength and passion as they swept through the city over the next few days in food riots, political strikes and demonstrations, these women launched the first revolution in 1917. In the West, International Women's Day continued during the 1910s and 1920s, but then died away, only reviving with the new wave of feminism in the 1960s. Since socialist women founded International Women's Day, it has been adopted by non-socialist feminists, governments and organisations which have little to do with women's rights. It is now more likely to be marked by an aromatherapy open day than by a march for women's rights. We should return to the original purpose of the day, to mobilise support for working-class women's demands and to celebrate the contribution that women make to the struggle for human liberation.